Hi, my friends. I do this work with all my heart for you. So please contribute generously to Future Primitive. friends who listen to Future Primitive. I'm uh, honoured to be here today with Tony Juniper. He is a leading independent environmentalist whose many activities include being a special advisor to the Prince of Wales Charities International Sustainability Unit. He is a fellow at the University of Cambridge Program for Sustainability Leadership and a founding member of the Roberts Bridge Group, which advises international companies. He is the author of the award-winning Parrots of the World, Speaks Macau, and How Many Light Bulbs Does It Take to Change a Planet?, he also co-authored Harmony with His Royal Highness, the Prince of Wales, and Ian Skelly. Today, we are centered on the publication of his new book by Synergia Press, and this book is called What Has Nature Ever Done for Us? How Money Really Does Grow on Trees. Mm. So shall we go outside right now and pick some money, Tony? Yes, uh, we, we, we could indeed do that. Uh, the book is really um, taking that title uh, because the reality of, of, of the world we inhabit is, is the opposite to what we sometimes see. And uh, the point about the uh, money growing on trees is to underline to people that there isn't really a choice between economy and ecology and that, in fact, these two things are different faces of the same coin. And in so much of political debate today and in so many boardrooms, it seems that the assumption is that looking after nature is an impediment to economic growth, a block on progress, a way of slowing down the, the, the ending of poverty. And many people see um, environmental rules really as um, a blockage on improving human welfare, when in fact the opposite is in fact the case. Without nature working properly, we have no economy, we have no economic growth, and we have no prospect to indefinitely improve conditions for humankind. And so the book is really seeking to bust the biggest myth in history that somehow there is a choice between economy and ecology and to in fact show that it, it is the looking after nature which is going to be our greatest asset for looking after humans into the future and i go into a great many examples of, of how this is the case in relation to human health the recycling of water the replenishment of clean air the way in which uh, property is protected from uh, extreme conditions uh, like flooding uh, through the absorption of rainwater and all these things the way in which forests are soaking up carbon dioxide pollinating insects are enabling agriculture to flourish and lots of birds are helping us to control pests all these things are pretty invisible in economics, and yet we degrade all of these services because we see the world through the wrong set of realities. So I was thinking while I was reading your book that um, children who live in a house 
that their parents have bought or rented don't realize, don't see the house around them. And they don't realize that the house is a life support system that they need to be not only economically fit, but protected from the things that could harm them. So I thought I would ask you to imagine that you're talking to children who are in the house of their parents and can't see the house. And that you would tell us a beautiful little story that really shows us that this is our house and the only one we have for now. Exactly. And, and, and isn't it ironic that the, um, the, 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 the Greek word oikos, which means house, is the origin of both the words ecology and economy? And yet one word we see as um, being um, the reality, the, the economy, and the other one we see as abstract and irrelevant and outside our day-to-day experience, the ecology, when in fact the real house is the ecology and the economy sits inside that bigger house. And inside the, 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 the book at the opening uh, part, I explore the um, experiment um, of Biosphere 2 that took place in Arizona during the 1990s, where this metaphor of house was brought very, very sharply into focus through the creation of a, of a closed system, an insulated, closed world in which scientists tried to recreate all that nature does for us inside a glass-domed structure in the Arizona desert. And this uh, story tells us about the incredible difficulty of being able to put a forest and a coral reef and a mangrove swamp and a desert inside a sealed structure in a way where it functions and replenishes the air, replenishes the water, creates enough food for people. And so that metaphor um, is extremely powerful in helping us to realize that this bigger house we live in called the earth really is a a set of um, self-sustaining functions upon which we rely fundamentally. And it is the real house. And that is the leap of consciousness that I think is needed if we are going to be able to thrive as a species at the end of this century and into the next one, is to see the reality that we inhabit for what it truly is, uh, that we are embedded in a set of natural systems, and we are as much a part of those as the birds and the bees. And in our insulated um, houses with air conditioning and vehicles going between the shops and the gym and the workplace, perhaps we've lost sight of that. And that maybe is the bigger danger still, beyond the misconception between ecology and economy and this choice that's being falsely painted for us by so many politicians and business leaders perhaps the bigger danger still is the fact that we don't see ourselves as part of nature anymore we're utterly outside it and take everything it does for us for granted if we're aware of it at all so the 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 the, the idea of the 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 house and the you know the the greek word for ecology and economy being the same the same origin is um is is really quite an important part of this story so sometimes I speak to people and I say, you know, we are like barnacles on top of a huge whale. I mean, we we depend, the barnacles depend on the whale. And other times I think, you know, I look out there and I think, uh, it's a very, and you write about that, it's a very thin skin of yes. the earth that yes. we live on. And so tell us how... That can become more real. That that this, that understanding can become for us as real as our own skin. 
the, the, the thing I've learned over many years of, of trying to, to change uh, attitudes and views and, and awareness about these ecological questions is the power of stories. And, and in the book, really, it, it is um, a set of anecdotes based on very good science, based upon the best science published by leading experts, but turning it into things that people can understand through uh, hearing the, 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 the story of, of how things are. And so Biosphere 2 is, is one of these stories. Uh, and a lot of people who've read the book find that quite powerful in in seeing the reality of a closed system the the earth's skin the atmosphere if you think about the thickness of this you look outside at the window you look up at the sky and you think this is endless it's infinite if you imagine the metaphor of a football with a coat of paint on it a coat of paint on a football is basically the thickness of the atmosphere compared to the earth that's how fragile and thin is the skin that we live within and if you traveled outside that thin skin you would have to travel perhaps for hundreds of light years for trillions and trillions of miles before you found anything that might be similar we don't know of anything that is similar this is the only one we've got and so trying to get across that reality to people through stories is what i'm striving to do in in what has nature ever done for us and crucially what i'm hoping to do with the book is to reach people who wouldn't normally think about these things and so to be able to uh, communicate the stories to uh, those of us who've not yet understood the environmental message and and i think actually it's succeeding um, judging by the feedback that's coming from some of the readers well, I mean, you just have to open the first page or the second or third or whatever, and it, you tell this story about how the vultures are becoming extinct in India and that the vultures have a very, very noble uh, job to do, which is they they will eat carcasses and bodies and of humans as well as animals. Um, but you see, I'm wondering how the story of outside can be changed. Everything that's outside ourselves is just outside. And so I'm wondering if you could come up with one story in the book uh, that would be, that would make somebody feel, well, this is not outside, this is... Yes. Well, one of the surprising things for me during the course of writing this book, and I, you know, I, I've been following some of these subjects for many years, but was surprised by, by some of the research I was finding in, in how fundamental is our reliance on different bits of the Earth system that you wouldn't really realise. And perhaps one thing that was most shocking for me was the role being played by the plankton drifting in the surface of the oceans, these tiny microscopic plants that drift at the top of the sea of course, are the basis of all the food chains in the ocean, which lead ultimately to the fish and the whales and the seals and the dolphins and all these big creatures, some of which are hugely important for the human economy in the sense of providing much of our food in the form of the fish that we catch every year. But what I hadn't realised about the role of these plankton was the fundamental uh, jobs they're doing in enabling life on the land to be able to exist at all. And so one of the things that I learned was the way in which these plankton are helping to seed the rain clouds, which are the main means of shifting fresh water around the planet. And so I'm sitting here in New Mexico looking at these vast clouds rumbling in, delivering rain. 
It seems almost impossible to believe that these clouds are in part the responsibility of plankton drifting in the surface of the ocean, which release this chemical called dimethyl sulfide, which goes into the air and unites with oxygen and then becomes part of the seeding process to create the clouds because the water evaporating from the ocean, it doesn't condense into clouds until there's tiny particles around which the water can coalesce. And these plankton are providing those tiny particles as part of their day-to-day function. And so much of the rain clouds circulating around the earth, these rivers, they're sky rivers. You could imagine the water being delivered. Without the plankton, that goes down. And then for areas of the world uh, that are particularly dry, uh, you know, you'd see the consequences of this very quickly. But not only are the plankton enabling the fish to grow and making it rain on land, they're also absorbing about a third of the carbon dioxide that's being produced by power stations and factories and vehicles uh, through the photosynthesis. They're taking carbon dioxide from the atmosphere and they're helping to turn that into more complex molecules. And as these animals, uh, as these tiny creatures, these tiny plants die, they take the carbon to the bottom of the deep oceans with them. And some of them have calcium carbonate shells. And if you look back into the long history of the Earth, you find that those chalky rocks uh, that you see in certain parts of the Earth, we have lots of them in England. The White Cliffs of Dover are a very good example example of this. This was made by plankton drifting in the ocean during the Cretaceous period, many many tens of millions of years ago. And that process is continuing today, and it's taking carbon out of the atmosphere and taking it into the deep ocean. But on top of making it rain, feeding the fish, reducing the climate change impact, you and I sitting here breathing oxygen right now, it's keeping us alive. At least a half of the oxygen we're breathing in this room right now was put into the atmosphere by those very same plankton. And so these tiny organisms are planetary engineers, and we hardly pay any attention to these things. We may see a bit of green colour in the ocean. That's those little organisms basically running planet Earth. Hmm. That's just a fabulous story. So I have a very crucial question for you. Everything has a reason and has a way of feeding everything else. And so I want to ask you, what about humans? What's the place of humans in this earthly system? I think that's probably um, for every person to decide for themselves. And hopefully with my book, I I encourage people to take a, a view about our place in the ecology of the earth. And the fact that we, as I said a a moment ago, you know, we're as much a part of the earth system as the trees and the butterflies. We're very much a product of the way in which this planet functions, the way in which nutrients are recycled, the way in which energy is captured from the sun and then transferred through plants to animals. And seeing ourselves as part of that system, I think, changes one's philosophical outlook in really quite a radical way if you understand how your entire being is connected to everything else that's going on on this planet in terms of everything else that's alive we're a part of that same system and the non-living bits of it the gases and the water and the soils or at least the non-living bits of the rock we're all embedded in that system and if you start to to realize that it really changes the way you think about things and I wouldn't tell everybody that that's the way they need to think but hopefully by writing about some of these things people can make up their own minds about how they want to look at this. Well, it seems to me that it's a much less lonely way of living than to think that one is separated from everything. Uh, it's a marvelous celebration to know that we are we are part of everything. Yes, exactly. I mean, 
I, I, I agree. And, you know, for, for whilst um, some of us in the Western societies, this comes as something of a revelation. Uh, some of the work I've, I've been involved with over the years, I've been lucky enough to, to help write a book with His Royal Highness the Prince of Wales and with Ian Skelly. The three of us wrote a book called Harmony that was published in 2010. And I had the opportunity during the course of that to be exploring some of the history of ideas and the extent to which the kinds of things I'm talking about now in terms of our embeddedness in nature, this, of course, was common knowledge to people until very recently. And if you look at the way in which some of the great religions, for example, Christianity, used to think about people's place in nature, it was very different to how modern Christians look at this. And indeed, you might in some ways see the evolution of, of some of the religions as following the, re the evolution of economic ideas and the extent to which we put ourselves outside nature in order to fit the prevailing worldview of capitalism. And uh, I think, you know, there's something really quite important for us to explore in terms of where people came from and the way in which the kind of things I'm talking about now and which are still the case today with the indigenous people. It was just a simple, basic fact of life. Of course, we're based in nature. Of course, everything we do relies on nature. And of course, the sun is the ultimate source of all welfare on Earth. Sun worship was not an irrational thing that people did. It was far more rational than many of the religions that I think are mainstream today. So that exactly brings us to the concept of a Ponzi scheme. Yes. I mean, Ponzi, Ponzi scheme takes everything, passes it around to certain people, and gives back nothing. So would you please speak about that? Because personally, that's what I see happening. And so how do you tell a story, Tony, that helps us understand that it doesn't have to be that way. Indeed. One of the, 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 the metaphors that I um, draw on in the book is the idea of natural capital. And this is an idea that's been um, uh, rising in recent years. And, and really, it's, it's a financial metaphor in the sense of describing nature as a set of capital assets from which we can derive an income, a set of um, flows or dividends. And so, for example, the ocean um, has fish. And if you don't destroy the fish stocks, you can take some fish each year. That's your dividend. That's your interest, your income. If you don't cut down a tropical rainforest, it will continue to recycle fresh water and to absorb carbon dioxide and sustain the communities of people who live there. Uh, if you keep intact uh, an upland uh, peat bog, it will help to prevent flooding downstream. That's another dividend you get from that kind of natural asset, capital asset. Of course, when you destroy those capital assets, then your interest goes away. You cut down the rainforest and it stops taking in carbon. You eat all the fish or catch all the fish, you get no more fish next year. And so with this idea of natural capital in mind, I explore in the book the idea of a, a planet-scale Ponzi scheme that's going on. And as you say, uh, a Ponzi scheme is really a, a, a fraud. It's a, a fraudulent financial structure that is giving the impression of paying out dividends when in fact what it's doing is liquidating the capital. And people put in capital expecting to get a dividend and they're not getting a dividend because basically the uh, capital is being used to pay earlier investors interest in inverted commas. And so this thing can only keep going as long as people continue to believe the fraud and put more money in. And 
at the scale of the, the global environment, what we're doing is we're liquidating the capital assets, and we see this as perfectly normal. We're treating this as income, as economic growth, when in fact what we're doing is degrading the opportunity to get dividends in the future. If we destroy the fish stocks, there will be no fish to eat in 50 or 100 years. If we cut down all the rainforests, they will be unable to absorb carbon dioxide and recycle fresh water. If we pollute the oceans to the point where they turn acid because of CO2 in the atmosphere, that they can no longer support plankton, not at the scale that it does now, then we begin to interfere with some of the fundamentals of the atmosphere itself in terms of oxygen replenishment. So those capital assets um, are being degraded, they're being liquidated, we're counting it as growth. And in the book, I, I compare that which we treat as perfectly normal and rational, that we degrade nature as a means of growing the economy. And yet when you do that in the financial system, you go to prison. And so Bernie Madoff, with his famous Ponzi scheme that was exposed in 2009, he got 150 years in jail. The leaders of the global corporations and the global governments or the international uh, leaders who, who are engaged in the planet scale Ponzi scheme, they get lauded for increasing economic development and for growing the economy at the expense of nature. It's a completely illogical way in which we manage natural capital compared to financial capital. And yet for many people in the capitalist system, I think this is a powerful metaphor to be able to show that what they think is is uh, a disaster in the financial world is exactly the kind of thing they're doing in the real world. And hopefully that idea of a planet-scale Ponzi will get a few of them thinking. Well, you see, after reading your book, uh, I see you as a language ambassador because it's a wonderful thing to see what's happening and to observe what's happening and to understand the systemic uh, dance of what's happening. But to be able to translate that into a language that people can understand who are perhaps stuck in greed because out of desperation, because they feel this loneliness of being separated from what is going on. So I want to ask you about language and how you have been learning a language that you could communicate to people that would change the behavior. Um, yes, well, I, I, um, I guess I came to, to being someone who uses language in this way by accident because I was never a scholar of languages as a child at school and I never excelled in English, but I guess through my years being a campaigner at Friends of the Earth, you get a feeling for what works in terms of what people can understand and what they can take on. And during those years of campaigning on climate change, on waste, on pollution, on tropical forests, I did hundreds and hundreds of public meetings. And in a public meeting, you look at the people sitting in the room and you have a question and answer session with them. You get a feel for what's connecting and what isn't connecting. And you can speak to the room of people and you see them dozing off or glazing over. And then suddenly they come back to life when you say something. And years of doing this, you, you get a real feeling for the kinds of words and ideas and propositions that will connect with people compared to those that will switch people off. And I think probably I've been lucky enough to be able to learn from that to the point where I can write in a way now that hopefully connects with more people than it would have done in the past when I, when I hadn't had so much of that experience. Yes, um, I, I see that you've brought all that experience to this book and I, um, I want to uh, highly recommend it. Um, I want to go to something very basic before we close. And uh, it's this phrase in your book that says, how many times do we thank the world for oxygen? 
So give us an idea of how you see oxygen and what it means to you for people who, who take it totally for granted. The oxygen in the atmosphere is, 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 is one of the most remarkable things about planet Earth. And I remember um, being struck very much by some comments by um, James Lovelock on this subject, the, 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 the man who invented uh, the idea of the planet being a, a self-sustaining system with all of the different bits interacting in ways which sustain optimum conditions for life, of course, including us humans. And he came to this um, view about the Earth being this self-sustaining system through the work he was doing as an atmospheric physicist working for NASA. And in the 1970s, looking at Mars and wondering whether life could ever be um, sustained on that planet. And he looked at it and he reached the conclusion that probably there wasn't life there because there wasn't free oxygen. And free oxygen being seen from this distance through different techniques um, would enable you to know whether the atmosphere was being held in this state of disequilibrium because oxygen if it's let it out into the atmosphere it binds with other things and it disappears it goes into um, union with other um, bits of the environment and the only way oxygen is kept free is by life forms liberating it and in our case of course it's the plants it's the green plants that are releasing oxygen the plants growing in the tropical rainforests and the boreal forests and crucially those plankton drifting in the surface of the ocean and if you looked at earth from distant space with the kind of instruments that we have available to us now if you're a visitor from another world you'd say long before you reach the earth you'd say there's life there because of the free oxygen in the atmosphere and that's being endlessly recycled and replenished and held into this state of disequilibrium in a way which sustains all of the animals in this incredible diversity that we live within and so oxygen, in some ways, is the signature of life, and uh, we breathe it without even noticing that simple fact. Uh, Tony Juniper, I know James Lovelock is not very optimistic about our future as a species. Do you see that we humans uh, will be able to change our consciousness, our awareness, in such a way that we will understand that we are in community with everything. Yes, I think we can. And I, I, um, I like, like anybody who spends any time working on these subjects, you, you kind of go between states of pessimism and optimism um, quite regularly. But I think in, in my case, the optimism prevails all the time. And I look back at history and you see the way in which ideas change and the way societies evolve and civilizations alter. And we are living in a fundamentally different set of circumstances compared to the past. And we could live in a fundamentally different set of circumstances in the future compared with now. And it's about the spread of ideas and the way in which ideas take root and lead to different behavior. And this is what this book is all about in the sense of hopefully inspiring people to start seeing things differently. And the way I try to find a route into that process is through the prism of economics, and so the book, How Money Really Does Grow on Trees, is really talking about the economic value of nature because we live in an economic society. Everything is about growth, it's about profit, it's about finance. And if we can get the world to look more at nature as fundamentally a part of all of those processes of profitability, of capital returns, and the way in which uh, we invest in order to be able to, to make uh, gain in the future, if, if we can locate nature within that economic uh, discourse, then I think we can be very optimistic about the future. 
And the economics, of course, is just one face of it. There's a spiritual dimension, there's a philosophical dimension. But I think the way into that is through the door of economics. And I think if we can do this, then we can be very optimistic about where we go next. What would you like to say, take a moment, and uh, what would you like to say in closing? I think you touched on the, the, the one of the stories earlier, which, which is the most powerful and which many reviewers and many readers in the UK, where the book is already published, they've kind of latched onto this story already. It's the story of the Indian vultures and the way in which these birds um, were found to be literally providing tens of millions of dollars of value to tens of billions of dollars, sorry, billions of dollars of value to the Indian economy before they were virtually wiped out through the use of this veterinary drug called diclofenac, which basically uh, killed off all the vultures. 40 million of them died out. And the 40 million vultures disappearing led to 12 million tons or so of rotting meat being left in the countryside. That became food for wild dogs. Their population rocketed as the vultures went down. The wild dogs bit people and transmitted rabies, leading to the death of an estimated 50,000 extra people who uh, wouldn't have died had the vultures still been there. And for me, this is one of the most cautionary tales, one of the ugliest, smelliest birds that people um, dismissed as being a part of uh, uh, the scavenging roadside um, uh, fauna. Um, we're actually providing this massive value. And if you look at the different bits of the natural systems we live within, you can repeat that story time and time again, and that's what the book does. But the vultures is the one that seems to have captured a lot of people's imagination. Thank you very, very much for being with us today. My pleasure. Thank you very much for, for the opportunity. Mm-hmm.